0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to Second Chance Cinema with MC and Spro, a podcast that takes a second look at films from the past that went under the radar for whatever silly reason. Before we begin our show, just a warning that our hosts do not censor their speech and have the habit of spoiling the movie's endings. So, if you wish to watch along with us, perhaps pause this episode and tune in later. As always, we appreciate all of our listeners I look forward to debating the greatness of this uncovered gym. Enjoy the
1: show. Welcome to hell, BH. Car, keys, wallet, now.
0: You hear what I said? Okay, now you listen, you listen good. It's a gun, okay? Don't be fucking around with no gun, white boy. Helen Keller, I'm talking to you. Can you hear what
1: the fuck I'm saying Boy, you picked the wrong
0: guy on the wrong day.
1: Upon escaping from Shawshank Prison in 1994, Andy Dufresne changed his name. Nick Bean and became an advertising creative director who was then seemingly cuckolded by his wife, driven into a downward spiral, and then carjacked by former Miami police officer Martin Lawrence and taken on a wild ride through the desert, through the cities, through hotel balconies all wrapped up in one of the most underrated buddy comedies I think I've ever seen. What's up, everybody? My name is MC. This is Second Chance Cinema. As always, I'm joined by my incredibly handsome, even though I can't see him, co-host, Spro. Spro, how are you?
0: I I am good. I'm blushing now, but thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Did you like that intro? I I freestyled I, that.
0: Did you freestyle? I'm so I happy did. that you brought up Shawshank Redemption at the top because I'm like, because Shawshank Redemption is kind of the same thing. He comes home, he finds his wife having an affair,
1: That's and
0: true. <laughs> he kills him, right? And so my thing was like it. this: this is if Andy. Dufresne walked away. Like, you know, fight or flight. flight. And this is the flight version of his...
1: That's actually, I didn't, I did not draw that comparison, but that's pretty brilliant. Like, I remember when we did The Beach, we said, uh, the movie The Beach, we said, is this what happened after Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) sank and died on the Titanic? He wound up here? Like, this is kind of like a bizarro Shawshank, where instead of spelunking through the sewers covered in shit, Andy Dufresne moves to, I think... California and becomes an advertising executive. I like that ending.
0: I don't think Morgan finds much hope in the walls of Shawshank, but
1: no. Well, I mean, that's that's a completely different movie. I mean, if you if you want to go on that tangent, Morgan Freeman's character would later become God and then give his (laughs) powers to Jim Carrey. So anyway, the movie, Nothing to Lose. This is a movie that I don't recall if I saw it in the theater, but came out in 1997. I remember watching this probably at least once a week, and I honestly could not tell you why. It was just one of those movies that, like, just a harmless, fun movie, very quotable and very just innocuous almost. Like, it's it's a very nicely wrapped movie where it, it starts – sort of standard conflict setup, and then the journey begins. And I remember watching it the first time and being like, this is going to be pretty predictable. But there were so many, like, what I might assume were ad-libs and just really, really small minutiae-type Bits in the movie that made it really memorable for me. I, I can't believe, honestly, that we haven't talked about this one already. I didn't realize that it was such a box office flop when I suggested it because I, th- I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the budget was like 25 million and it ended up making like 40 million dollars, which blows my mind considering Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence. Because I mean, C- uh, Shawshank was three years prior, Bad Boys was two years prior. Like, I don't understand why. It didn't do bananas numbers at the box office.
0: Right. Well, and like the reviews, which we'll get into usually at the end of the show, largely pointed out that they loved how, I guess, Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence are both famous for being difficult to work with, which those are always, you know, hearsay rumors. But The critics were both pleasantly surprised that Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence would pick this type of movie to do together. And then most of the reviewers went after Steve Odenkirk, the writer-director.
1: Before we get started, I have a story about Tim Robbins. I have nothing but love for Tim Robbins. Right as we were graduating college, I and I won't go into big detail, but I uh, got my first job in New York, and part of what led me to that job was a scavenger hunt that potential candidates had to go through. And one of the things, it was all around New York City. And one of the things that they put on the list was picture with a celebrity. And of course they put it on there like, yeah, right. That's never going to happen. So myself and some of the other candidates were running around. I think it was Astor Place in, in New York City. And one of the guys we were with was like, hey, that's Tim Robbins. And there was this just like giant spindly figure of a man with a pea coat and a beanie and a backpack. And we were all like, yeah, that is Tim Robbins. So we ran over to him like we we bum rushed him and we had a cameraman with us at the time and This was what the cool thing was. Like Tim Robbins was, he didn't like freak out or anything like that. He like put his hands up and was like, okay, calm down, calm down. What's going on? What's going on? Like, obviously he knew that, that we knew who he was, but then he explained, he's like, you know, when I see you guys running at me with a a group and a camera like that, you know, that puts me on guard and I don't know, I I, I turn into somebody I don't want to be. So, you know, I appreciate you guys explaining to me what's going on. And eventually we got a picture with him. And I just remember like, I mean, it's a pretty, as far as Tim Robbins stories go. That's a pretty lame one, but I remember just him being remarkably calm and cool, and like it was above and beyond him to explain like how we approach that poorly. No, I think that's so, a
0: very level-headed story for Tim Robbins, and I feel like
1: I feel like you could tell that story without mentioning the actor, and sixty percent of the time people would be able to guess, yeah, I bet that's about Tim Robbins, you know? <laughs> just like it's either Tim Robbins or Tom Hanks, I feel like. So we're gonna play the trailer for nothing to lose. While we do that, I'm gonna pull up the wheel of poetry. Um, and what this is, is we're going to randomly be assigned a type of poem slash um, literary creation that we will have to create during the trailer. The, the options are haiku, ABAB poem, limerick, song parody, or toast slash roast. So we're going to play the trailer right now for nothing to lose. I'm going to spin the wheel and let's see what we land on. Ready? Ready? rhyme the first and the third lines Rhyme in the second and the fourth lines so you ready to do this yeah, i'm ready all right nothing to lose here's the trailer now we're still on for tonight you still love me i love you i'm gonna try to beat her home going a surprise her nick beam is about to come home to the right place at the wrong time now things couldn't possibly get any worse
0: you listen good it's so good
1: car keys wallet now Helen it, it i'm talking to you Boys, you picked the wrong guy on the wrong day. Come oh, on, there's a truck right there. Oh, stop!
0: You drive me home, I forget about this whole kidnapping.
1: Come on, boy, boy. what's what's up? Oh! Oh. Hey. oh. You're a freak of human nature. It's clear you have women problems. Oh.
0: You weren't going to leave without me, were you? You take that money back. Move out. I'm not going anywhere until you return. Here we go. How stupid can you be? There are smarter ways to do it. Enlighten me. Wear a mask. You know, I never noticed before, but you have really nice eyes.
1: Touchstone Pictures presents... Great! I'm alive! Two men with everything to gain. You go for the big score. Am I hearing you right? One robbery. You're set. Ah! and nothing to lose the money it's not your money not your money it's half of mine let's (laughs) go back off Oh. (laughs) I don't want to die like this Nick I really don't think you should be moving right now call the paramedics have to meet me with a gurney I'm gonna count to three one don't touch the sheep two are you
0: on two already three (laughs) I got it Go, boy!
1: Nothing to lose.
0: What kind of man stays out till 2 30 in the morning? Don't you talk back. Don't talk back to your mother. You got that slap cause you're with it
1: That was a good trailer. That is a good trailer. Um that was that was a classic like 1997 trailer I feel like like it had the I don't know what the song is but it sounded like James Brown or something like that and mm-hmm. the classic trailer voice and it was like Again, just like a really like harmless buddy comedy trailer. That trailer made me happy just now. That's that's good. I, feel,
0: I don't see trailers very much anymore. I guess maybe because I slightly like I'm on Hulu live, like I slightly unplugged from the TV. You fast forward trailers now, there's very little TV spots that you see. So if you see a trailer, it's because you went to a movie theater and now the movie right. theaters are closed. So I guess well, I don't watch I
1: trailers. I on... I mean, the last trailer, and I watched this trailer at least once a day, but you know, like Comic Cons and stuff are where the trailers debut. So. Top Gun Maverick is the trailer I've been watching like every day. That's the last one that I remember seeing, being like, holy shit, that's awesome. So, yeah, getting shivers kind of. And then they pushed it back to December, but we'll see. Okay. So, we did an ABAB poem. You ready to go?
0: Yeah, I'll probably go first. Just I think like most of my rhymes are pretty much like the same word. And I feel bad about that, but they're not the same word. So, they're super close. Do it. What a wonderful movie this is. Forgot all about it until you suggested it. Martin Lawrence funnier than Ish. Don't know a movie of his that
1: bested it. Ish. I have not heard the word Ish in so long. You're so hit. Since hip. Cisco? <laughs> yeah, since the Thong Song, which was also 1997, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Oh wow! Nice, good recall yeah. there.
1: All right, here's mine. Nick Beam's life was upended. His marriage turned all askew. In the end, all was amended. He cut the dick off a statue. <laughs> Nice. Which to, nice. to be honest, I forgot completely about that part until I was put on the spot to write that poem. And then it just popped in my head. I was like, oh, I have to use that as the kicker. So let's dive in here. So Tim Robbins plays Nick Beam. The first thing that made me laugh about rewatching this movie is that he's an advertising creative director. And he works in this like palatial office wearing a fancy suit. And it's just like probably the least realistic representation of what an advertising office is, except for, and I'm drawing a blank, that movie with Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt, where he also plays a creative director. And he basically, oh, uh, what's it what called? Yep. His, his office is essentially like, it looks like Xavier's school for the gifted. That's not how it is. I've worked in several advertising firms and they're all basically just like garbage open spaces with rickety elevators. So watching this again, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. We get to meet Nick beam. He's kind of like, he's got everything going for him. He's got a wife that he loves, Kelly Preston, rest in peace. I know that she's one of your favorites. So
0: you're the one that broke the news to me.
1: I know. And I felt really bad about that. At the same time, I guess I'm glad you heard it from me and not from like, I don't know, some random Twitter. She, she plays his wife and they're madly in love. And uh, what turns out to be a misunderstanding leads him to believe that she's having an affair with his boss played by probably one of my favorite. Well, I would, I would argue top three favorite character actors of all time. Michael McKeon, who. His character isn't written entirely like to shine, but he's awesome.
0: He's only got two scenes in this movie.
1: I mean, it's basically at the beginning and the end, he sort of makes his presence felt. So then Tim Robbins, character just stumbles upon what he believes to be his wife and his boss going at it in their bedroom and then just sort of like checks out, goes off the deep end and drives away and then gets carjacked by Martin Lawrence's character, Terrence, who you heard from the trailer, picked the wrong guy on the wrong day. So when was the last time you saw this movie before we suggested it?
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I know I owned it on VHS. And the weird thing is, is I completely forgot about this movie's existence until you suggested it. And then I was like, all right. And then it wasn't until like really the pandemic and I put on Instagram, like I couldn't figure out What movie it was where the guy was like, wear a mask. And I was Mm -hmm. like, what is it? Like, I want to like screenshot it. And then I saw that you did on social media. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is it. And you said Mm -hmm. we should do nothing to lose. And I was like, great. Now in, I just took a family trip. I was going to say vacation, but it was pretty much a trip to a timeshare. We couldn't get our money back on. And we all hung out with the nieces and nephews or the new term, I guess, is nibblings. My nibblings and I hung out and we, there was one moment where my like nine-year-old nephew was played. Air fighting with me, and he was about like five steps away. So I started swinging my elbow widely and grunting. And I was like, I don't know what movie that's from, but it's from a movie, and it was from this movie as well. And I was like, there's a lot to nothing to lose that I just retained and used probably maybe once a month. And it's it was so funny to revisit it. Uh, I actually watched it this morning and was like, oh my gosh that I took from it this I took from it and I wanted to say I always kind of said that Martin Lawrence's best film was when he's working off of Will Smith with the Bad Boys series I'm going to take that back and I feel like this is his this is peak Martin Lawrence
1: so Martin Lawrence I think I don't think anybody would argue that he's a comedian as opposed to an action hero and in Bad Boys it was sort of like he played both roles like there were scenes where He was shooting people and and fighting people and doing action hero stuff. But he was also, I would say, the more comedic role. So it was kind of like he was split down the middle. But we know him as the comedian. And in this movie, it's just like, I don't know, again, what's the writing and what's the ad-libbing, but like, there are just so many little nuances, like when he cracks his nose with the spoon or when they're at the diner and he's like, lady, for all you know, I could be Denzel Washington. (laughs) Yeah, I'll make a deal with you. You drive me
0: home, i forget about this whole kidnapping shit. Oh, come on. I'll... Hello? You tried to rob me. You
1: had a gun to my head. Look, I told you the gun wasn't loaded. You got yourself into this. You know what you are? You're a bad person. You're an armed robber. Don't expect me to feel sorry for you. Excuse me. Is there a problem here? Yes. Is this man bothering you?
0: Yes, he is. Oh, so you're just gonna come right after brother. Won't you ask if he's bothering me? Lady, for all you know, I could be Denzel Washington. Take a good look.
1: He could be some celebrity stalker. I'm gonna have to ask you to pay for this coffee now, because I've seen these things escalate before. No problem. Oh.
0: Wow. It's um. like the celebrity stalker them not have a
1: wallet. Oh, well, thank you. I will get your change, sir. Mm.
0: Mm. What? You want me to thank you? So I owe you a buck. How was you going to get gas? You don't have no money, no credit cards, no ID.
1: Shit, man. Okay. Give me money for gas, and
0: I'll take you back. Now, I'm cool. I'm I'm straight. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, you know I like it out here in the desert. <laughs> you know, you get all sweaty and shit, <laughs> just bubbling off your ass.
1: It's just, it's just a really, really good showcase of these, just like. I don't want to pretend I know the first thing about acting, but it's like these small, simple, just like memorable choices that just make you laugh. I feel like this this movie sort of really like emphasizes what we wanted this podcast to be about, which is just like the hidden gem movie that that everybody's kind of forgotten about. Yeah, absolutely. So the carjacking happens. Martin Lawrence is expecting Tim Robbins to just hand over the keys to his car, but Tim Robbins has already resigned his fate and is, is just sort of Well, he's got nothing to lose. Spoiler alert. (laughs) So he just peels out and takes Martin Lawrence with him, basically kind of like kidnapping Martin Lawrence. So it becomes this weird dynamic where now they're both victims and they're both perpetrators. And then they end up sort of running into this duo of like actual criminals who another great one of my favorite character actors. John C. McGinley plays this just like really, there are parts where he's just like outright terrifying as this, uh, I don't know if he was supposed to be like a skinhead or what, but he was just really like, on one hand, he was aggressive. On the other hand, he was just like so subtle and unnerving. And then the other guy that he was with was hilarious too, who I've heard his name before a million times, but I didn't know until I looked it up, Giancarlo Esposito. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell you a thing about him, but I just remembered that Again, he was more like the comedic one. He talked with like a, I don't know if it was a British accent or something like that, but they were the supporting characters who were kind of like the foil Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence. And we get to the end of the movie, we realize it's all a big misunderstanding. But throughout the whole movie, we sort of get a glimpse into a topic that's certainly relevant today, which is class and race and all that sort of stuff that that's revealed through the like really like endearing interactions of Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence.
0: Yes. Carlo Esposito. He was a big character and a very staunch and stoic character in Breaking Bad as Gus Fring. It was crazy to see him and remember that he was in this movie and he's, you know, laughing always with like a blow pop in his mouth or something. Right, and yeah. Him and Martin Lawrence had acted before in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. So you start the movie
1: with the carjacking, essentially. And as they go through this, this journey to where... Tim Robbins has this kind of like revelation where he realizes that Martin Lawrence is basically like a petty thief who, you know, has been trying to steal to support his family. And he, you know, he does it on a small scale. He'll like, I think he like holds up gas stations and stuff like that. And then Tim Mm -hmm. Robbins sort of has the light bulb to, he says, you know, you do one heist, one big heist, and then you're set. You don't do, I mean, how much could you get from a gas station? A hundred bucks, 200 bucks. It goes from this like antagonistic relationship to now they're partners. That's where the movie really I really started enjoying the movie was when they become kind of like vulnerable to each other. And Martin Lawrence right away is able to pick up on the fact that Tim Robbins has, quote, women problems. And (laughs) Tim Robbins is sort of like this personification of white privilege, really, that Martin Lawrence calls them out on. And throughout the whole movie, they they play off of each other in a way that's, number one, hilarious, but number two, really kind of insightful. And
0: I feel like all the relationships in this movie are similar in that vein where it's kind of I think Steve Odekirk does a really good job of putting two kind of contentious people in the same. He opens it with Tim Robbins and Kelly Preston sitting on the bed, just trying to make up reasons why they hate each other and even from then they turn like I hate you into I love you where do I start it's not you well actually it is you look I'm just not not attracted to you anymore I need space. You kind of, you kind of gross me out. In the beginning it was different. In the beginning you were better, but then I got to know you real well and I, I came to realize You're a fat idiot. I got you, got you.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, okay. Let me try. You gotta be straight. Okay. Straight face. Okay, idiot. okay. I want a divorce. Why? It's
0: a physical thing. Physical? I've been experimenting with other men lately a lot of other men and women I don't know I, I mean Antonio can
1: do this thing with his tongue and William's stamina is amazing and as far as hands go well your father has hands <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's almost realer to see that instead of just some melodramatic romance playing off in the first scene where you you really feel for it. And when you think and I r- remember seeing this movie for the first time and being like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe that she's actually cheating on him because they set it up so well." They give you everything that you need to know. Like she tells him like my sister's coming in town, but it's all, it's the wrong date. It's like a week in advance. And so, you know, he comes home, he thinks he's seeing his wife in bed, but there's only the back shot. And he just stumbles out. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and I remember feeling while watching it, like, oh, my God, like, I liked them to get there's only one scene with them together and maybe a phone call. But you like them as a couple. And to see that happen, you're like, oh, I totally feel for him because that it seemed like they were meant to be together. Oh, And then when you put him in the same car with Martin Lawrence and you watch their relationship unfold, you could see that, you know, Martin Lawrence is holding up people with an unloaded weapon. Like, he's not a bully. He's not he's not an actual criminal he's just trying to do what he can to make to make ends meet with his family and Tim and Robbins is kind of on like the other side of the yin and yang for him
1: that's a good point you mentioned that like Tim Robbins and Kelly Preston only have like one or two scenes where they're actually interacting and even then you're just like yeah i like these this couple and then and then you you see the reveal where he thinks she's cheating on him it could have been a very different movie i mean it could have been like <laughs> like you could you could start with that same premise and turn this into just a very dark, dark movie, like where, you know, he just loses his mind and full downward spiral. But the genius, I think, of turning it into a comedy is like, I feel like you almost become more invested because... You're, you're taking along for this ride that you enjoy, despite these circumstances that are really, really shitty. And then once everything's wrapped up at the end, it feels like it feels good.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like the way it's shot and everything allows you to laugh because you don't even need really a different script to make this a completely different movie. I mean, I was chuckling the fact that you see so Martin Lawrence sneaky as a ninja, I, which I really like the scene when uh, he carjacks Tim Robbins because Tim Robbins is just sitting there. He's just... Staring at a steering wheel or whatnot. And then a gun enters the frame and they kind of pan back, and you realize that Martin Lawrence has actually opened the door and is sitting in the passenger seat when he's saying, like, you know, give me your wallet and your car keys. And then Tim Robbins just floors it. And it's almost like a throwaway scene, but it pretty much starts the rest of the movie. Tim Robbins goes, Oh, you want my wallet? and throws it out the window. Him throwing his wallet out the window pretty much ties him to Martin Lawrence for the rest of the film. And they keep having to, like, go back to like, well, if you had any money, we wouldn't have to steal the ski masks or the flashlights, you know? But uh, so Tim Robbins kidnaps Martin Lawrence and goes through red lights and almost gets hit by cars. And then they kind of fade into them two states away. They drove through Nevada and now are entering Arizona. And Martin Lawrence is in the passenger seat crying now, you know, (laughs) like, like, please, man, just let me go. You're not like one of those slashes, right? You ain't one of them desert slashers, are you? Cut a person's body up and leave it out in the desert in little tiny pieces and shit, huh? Oh shit! We are in the fucking desert! I'm in the car with a psycho Freaky Jason head killer, motherfucker! Hey, please don't kill me, Freaky Jason! I say please don't kill me, Freaky Jason! And right there, like, you're kind of like, if they just played this, like, yeah, Tim Robbins might kill Martin, like, he might just drive him more states away and then kill him. And like, that could be what you're saying is like a completely different film. But because it's shot with the light that it is, with the coloring that it is, and the fact that Martin Lawrence and Tim Robbins are almost made for these roles and are naturally playing pretty much themselves, I would almost say, in these situations, obviously. But this movie just feels it's comfortable to watch
1: and chuckle at. So the dynamic between Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence, like there are so many levels, I think, and that's why it's fun to watch. Like there's the basic level of carjacker and victim. Then there's the... Inverse of abductor abductee. Then there's the evolving relationship of them, sort of as partners and cohorts in this caper that they've that they decided to try and pull off. And then there are elements, like I said before, of the representation of the inequality and the obliviousness that that Tim Robbins has to, like Martin Lawrence and his family's struggle. It's one of those things where I felt like that whole dynamic was handled really well and really poignantly because it wasn't like shoved right in your face there were a couple scenes where it was presented with comedy like where martin lawrence was was like how big's your tv and tim robbins i forget what he said he's like 50 inches or something like that and martin lawrence is just like get the fuck out of (laughs) here and and like right there was just i mean that's like clearly you know what they're alluding to and then they end up back at martin lawrence's family's apartment and well number one you see martin lawrence like his kids wake up and middle of the night and they come out and see him and give him a hug. And it's clear that they love him very much. And he's a good father and his wife comes out and his mama lives there too. And She's kind of like the comic relief of the family. She slaps him around for being late and all that kind of stuff. But it's very clear that Tim Robbins was not expecting that type of a dynamic. And this was one I forgot about until I watched it again. There's the part where Martin Lawrence goes to sleep and Tim Robbins is like sleeping in the living room. And he kind of gets up and walks around and sees all these rejection letters from job applications that Martin Lawrence has has filled out. And earlier in the movie he sort of condemns Martin Lawrence saying something like you could have a job if you wanted one. You know, I forget the exact discussion after that, but that moment like when he's looking at those letters, like that was that was a really very like subtle way to Again, point out the obliviousness of his character um, in a way that didn't make him look like a dick, but almost made it sympathetic for both characters.
0: Right, there's a reason I know exactly what senior talking about with the the talk. Like you could have a job if you wanted one. I think this is in part with Steve O'Derkirk is that he knew that he was making a buddy comedy. He didn't want to be like overly. F- hand-fisted with the moral and the lessons of the story and the dynamic between the social injustice that he was getting into. And I think with that scene, they immediately have to redirect their attention elsewhere and so it's also nice the fact that he didn't just i think he got bad reviews for this because i think you know critics and high art people want people to dive deeper and dig deeper and get to the the meat of the they want their lesson you know on a on a silver platter where or steve odekirk keeps going back and giving you a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until until the very end and that's what I like about
1: it none of this movie is is heavy handed it's for, for as over the top as the movie is it's it's very subtle like the relationship mm-hmm. building is very subtle the social commentary is very subtle even the humor like when it's over the top and ridiculous like the when he's dancing with his shoes on fire and stuff like that like mm-hmm. that's almost so over the top that it like borders on like this abstractness of just like where the fuck did this scene come from and why is it in this movie that started with a guy being sad that his wife was cheating on him it's such a it's just such a like a roller coaster which again is just done really well to the point where like you really like both of these characters who clearly are flawed but by the end their flaws are almost both justified and you know resolved once the movie's culminated right well and I do want to point out that
0: the day and because the critics also point out I was like well there's the scene where they're playing the scat man and he's dancing with the shoes on fire that's not just like thrown in there like they have Tim Robbins daydream about and maybe it's also because I have a huge crush on Kelly Preston but he's daydreaming at the gas pump of you know his mer- his wedding day with Kelly Preston in the convertible and because he's daydreaming about how much he loves his wife he overfills the gas tank and spills gas all over his shoes and then about like maybe 10 minutes later in the movie martin lawrence is like what's that smell and he's like oh it's my shoes he's like you ever hear of dr shoals and he's like well no i spilled gas on him and then a little bit later so you're kind of like you're reminded of that and then when he's dancing in the street you know the matchbook falls out and that's what lights his shoes on fire and this is also during the time that martin lawrence is talking about the cameras right and being like you didn't get a good camera here right And because martin lawrence has the camera in his hand he films him with his shoes on fire and that is how tim robbins gets away with this crime because martin lawrence uses that video of just his shoes being on fire and not his face to to go over the security camera footage in pb's office so it's like the critics throwing out be like this is a ridiculous scene No, no no everything is connected in this movie like it's Like in Dumb and Dumber, when his shoes catch on fire and he's trying to pick up a woman, everything happens in like 15 seconds. That's fairly Brothers comedy, where Oda Kirk has a he's a better writer. Like he's got Nutty Professor 1 and 2 under his belt, Bruce and Evan Almighty, Patch Adams. And the only thing that I was like, Ace Ventura 2 is probably
1: the one that I'm like, meh, that wasn't great. But I think I really enjoy his work. The thing too that, and you just mentioned, I forgot when Martin Lawrence is talking about the video camera and he's like, uh, Tim Robbins is like, yeah, the guy who sold it to me said it was top of the line. And Martin Lawrence goes on about like, oh, you didn't get digital, then you got ripped off. Like Martin Lawrence's character is, it's very like oniony. They, they peel back a layer, like every scene to where they show that he's intelligent. They show that he's compassionate. They show that like when he start when you first meet him, he's, essentially a criminal but every scene for the most part peels back a layer and shows again that he's capable and he's like endearing and and all that sort of stuff and that's a great example when, when he's talking about like the stuff that he knows about it's very clear that he's an intelligent person and I forget if that happens before or after. I'm guessing it's before they stay in his apartment and Tim Robbins sees the letters. But it just adds to the the gravity of what he's talking about, saying he can't get a job and that sort of thing. And it's it, it makes you feel very like sympathetic for him and also kind of sympathetic for Tim Robbins for being so unaware and living in this bubble. And the the point you mentioned too about all the scenes having a purpose that's that's a great example because that that scene with the the shoes on fire happens, I would say probably like, I don't know, middle of the movie or maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit before that. But then when they go to pull off the big heist and they end up trying to rob Tim Robbins' boss... They learn that it's all on video, it's all been captured by security cameras, and you're right, it keeps building and building and building until you almost have forgotten about that scene until the very end when they go to view the security tapes and Tim Robbins is about to take off his mask and give his boss a big F you, and then it cuts to the scene again and you're like, oh yeah, that happened, and he was videotaping it, and this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Martin Lawrence probably has the best character arc of the movie, and he makes the biggest uh, moral decision because they do steal—I forget how much they say. at Least I think he said a couple million, maybe it was a hundred, a couple hundred thousand. But they steal it from the boss, and then they start arguing over the money. And it's not like a you know a knockout drag out argument, but it's it's enough for this buddy comedy. And Martin Lawrence is like, this would have changed my life, and he gives the money back so tim robbins can keep his life and at that like at that moment right there i was like oh my god like that's the most unselfish thing because we just spent the whole movie showing him and the family that he's trying to get out of a neighborhood where gunshots are sounding off every night waking everybody up like and he had his future and really when they steal the money the first thing he says is like my son's gonna go to college my my daughter's never gonna know what a food stamp you know like it's all Mm -hmm. for very unselfish reasons Mm -hmm. And then in the end, he gives the the money back. So Tim Robbins, because Kelly Preston does love him um, Mm -hmm. and never cheated on him. He's like, yeah, here's the money. Go go save yourself.
1: I remember the line exactly. He says, Tim Robbins, when he's trying to persuade Martin Lawrence to give the money back, he says, come on, T, I can get my life back. And Martin Lawrence kind of just hangs his head and he's like, you know, you forget one thing. I get my life back, too. That kind of nails the movie down very, very clearly and very, very successfully and very intelligently in just that one quick exchange that that really sort of like illustrates the underlying relationship between these two guys.
0: Yeah, definitely. It shows like the crossroads. And I think, you know, if, if you really want to dissect the movie, Tim Robbins is sitting in that apartment watching Martin Lawrence put his children to bed and and kiss his wife and be like, Mama, I'm sorry, and apologize to his mom. And Tim Robbins, who thinks he, he has it all because he's got the 50-inch TV and he's got the very nice house and he's got the new GMC, what was that,
1: truck? Oh, <laughs> it was Utah? very weird to
0: see. Yeah, they- <laughs> oh, man, you know, they giant,
1: man, that was like when that was 1997. So that was like when I feel like that was like when SUVs were just becoming like a thing. And yeah. he had this big, giant, unnecessary Bright blue GMC Yukon. Well, I remember seeing that as like 16 and being like, wow, that looks like a monster truck. (laughs) Like, like that's, yeah, that's so ridiculous. And now when you watch it, I was like,
0: that kind of looks like a piece of shit. Right. (laughs) I was not impressed with it at all. And I was like, that's like the fancy car. But so, yeah, he thinks he has everything. And then, much like how life will hand you lemons, he had so much inner turmoil because he didn't have, or what he thought he didn't have have was the happy home life. Like you could have all the riches in the world, but if you ain't got friends and you ain't got
1: love, like what do you got? That's an interesting point you bring up because usually like when it's like a two dimensional movie, it's like either the character has no money or material wealth, but has love and a family or the opposite. They have material wealth and money, but they don't know the love of a family. This one, Tim Robbins kind of had both at the beginning and then both were stripped from him really abruptly. By the end, he sort of you know gets back to square one to where he has both of them again but he's an evolved character because he has an appreciation for the struggle of of martin lawrence's character who what do you call it? he um mischaracterized in the beginning but then got to know and got to realize that he was a completely different person than he initially thought mm-hmm. a lesson for all a lesson for all for sure one thing we forgot to mention about this movie the Noxima girl is in it do you remember her? Uh, rebecca Gayhart. And I forgot about this. I knew this, but I forgot about it until I I sort of went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. She killed somebody. Did you know that? No, I did not. Not a murder, but a car accident. Right when she was at the top of her Noxima girl popularity and moving, I feel like vehicular manslaughter yeah so while driving a vehicle she struck nine-year-old Jorge Cruz jr and he he died the following day you don't remember that I don't at all so that was in 2001 so we would have been out of high school and that was just like like it wasn't one of the I mean obviously it wasn't big news but it was one of those things where like she had just kind of like she was super popular. She was everywhere when we were in high school the late 90s. Then she kind of disappeared and then she popped back up in the news and I remember just being like, wow, that girl. I forgot about her and now I'm reminded of her for a really terrible reason. But yeah, her character in the movie only serves to kind of emphasize the pain of Tim Robbins because her character in the movie, she's a florist, I think, at like the building where he works and he mm-hmm. comes in all the time and, you know, he he buys flowers for his wife, but at the same time he kind of like like flirts with her a little bit. Like, I think he says something like nobody buys you flowers. That's a crime. And she's got a crush on him. She's pining for him. And then eventually there's a scene where after his life has gone to shit, they, they start to um, imply that they're going to hook up, but he doesn't go through with it. It's a little bit of a redeeming scene because he could have very well like like his life has been turned to shit and he's he's got this very tempting situation in front of him, but he he just sort of still is in love with his wife. And I think right after that is when he goes down to call her and be like, Hey, look, I know I saw you. And that's when she tells him, she calls him a dick, and then, <laughs> then she tells him, No, that was my sister. So yeah, Rebecca Ahart, the Noxema girl. She's, I wouldn't say she's like the kaiser soze of this movie but you know her character has a point yeah like every everybody is justifiable
0: with their actions and i think with tim robbins like he is a good guy who wants to kind of experience the bad life you know but he never really goes full in unless we say like the guy at the doorway when they're stealing the flashlights and he's like freeze motherfucker i'll blow you know like and then henry is like that was really scary
1: That was much better. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, That's like the only time that Tim Robbins like goes full force. Other than that, he's the charming guy who's robbing people. And I remember seeing the trailer where, you know, you see them kissing in the elevator. And when she comes back in the movie, I was like, wait a minute, is he going to sleep with her? Like if he sleeps with her, I can't. I remember that it wasn't Kelly Preston, it was the sister. But I was like, I don't know if he's about to sleep with her. If I can (laughs) really justify his actions of getting back together with Kelly Preston, because, you know, now he's got the affair under his belt but he does not sleep with her. And that's just another instance of him wanting to do bad things. But him being a good guy really deep down is he
1: can't, um, Rebecca Gayhart's almost 50. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) That's just, I mean, that's one of those, like, that's like a super reality check. Oh, wow. She was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah.
0: I don't remember Billy Booth as the character. I don't know what this urban legend that's coming up, if they're going to remake it. Urban
1: legend? You You never saw urban legend?
0: I owned the first one and it said, you know, in 1998, Brenda Bates, but on her IMDB, it says it's that's her neck she's in pre-production playing Brenda Bates and urban legend again. So I wonder if they're uh, going to reboot it.
1: Uh, well, I wouldn't be surprised. They're, they're making another scream movie. So, um, Are they really? what I was going to say is you made a good point. Like if, if Tim Robbins had, had slept with Rebecca Gayhart and then found out that his wife, that it was all a big misunderstanding, that would have been a completely different movie. Like we wouldn't be talking about it because that would have been just a shitty, shitty set of circumstances. But It made sense for the Tim Robbins character to kind of maintain his moral fiber so that when it was resolved and when it was revealed to be a big misunderstanding, it was that much sweeter. Absolutely. So do you have any reviews in front of you?
0: I... So this one, here's the thing, is that this came out before Metacritic. And Metacritic is usually the site that I like to take my deep dive on. I like how they categorize everything, how they lay it all out. So I had to do my deep dive on Rotten Tomatoes. And I don't like Rotten Tomatoes as a movie site to me. Rotten Tomatoes is like the Yelp of movie reviews. Uh, okay. And the other thing that like Rotten Tomatoes is, it's just full of dead-end links And so, like, you try to go into anything to read the full review and it goes, you know, it's a 404 error code. I do have two reviews, but neither of them I really like. One of them really just focuses on both of the main characters' races, which... I hate when people do that. And then the other review is from, and I'll tell you how deep of a dive we're going, it is the Movie Report, which is just a moviereport.com the reviewer is Michael Dequina. So he gave it a three and a half out of four stars. Very small review that says, pairing Funny Man Martin You So Crazy Lawrence with serious actor Tim Robbins is an inspired idea, and Lawrence's wacky plays well off of robin's somber stoicism (laughs) less inspired however is the entirety of writer director steve odekirk's buddy comedy in which carjacker terence davidson teams with his marked depressed ad exec nick beam to rob money from nick's boss who in turn is suspected of sleeping with nick's wife there are laughs to be had here but for every fresh and funny scene such as one where nick robbing a sporting goods store with terence Asking the elderly cashier if his hold up technique is scary, there is another that is incredibly forced, most notably a bit involving a dancing and lip syncing security guard played in a self indulgent turn by Odakirk himself. Lawrence and Robbins obviously have funny together or have fun together, but they can't do too much to enliven the more run of the mill action comedy elements like the obligatory car chases and comic fight scenes. So what was his criticism that Well, that- I don't I think a lot of people did not like the fact that Odakirk casted himself in like probably what's a one minute long dance sequence of him as a security guard
1: Yeah, of all the scenes in the movie, that's one that probably could have done without. But even still, I mean, it's not—it's not without a little bit of purpose because it—it adds a little bit of tension to the fact that they're like in this office, ready to rob it, and now they've just got to endure, you know, this like hour-long distraction and hope not to get caught. I mean, that's a stretch, but I wouldn't say it. Definitely didn't ruin the movie for me. Like it sounded like it did this guy.
0: Yeah, no. And then he says the obligatory car chases and. fight scenes and really the car chase is about one to two minutes long and the comic fight scenes like i said resonated with me because i try to pull one of the elbow thrust and moves on one of my nephews and didn't even know where i picked it up from
1: what was the ca- what's what's the car chase
0: i think the car chase is when john c mcginley and them are like just c- trying to ram each other off of the road you know this isn't the italian job the the <laughs> car chases aren't 20 minutes long. Like it's one and a half, two minutes. They'll be over.
1: (laughs) That's why I was wondering. I thought car chase, I mean, I couldn't think of a car chase in the movie. I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. And again, it's like, this isn't an action movie. This is a comedy movie you know that's anchored on a carjacking essentially but that's really nothing more than like the jumping off point
0: well and the other thing is it says his synopsis of the film is which carjacker Terrence davidson teams with his mark to press ed exec nick beam to rob money from nick's boss that's not what this movie is about at all like they don't come up with the idea together you know like it's about 40 minutes into the film that i think that the idea even comes up that like stop robbing gas stations and just have one big mark which you're like yes that's Totally makes sense, and I hope it goes well. But if you're busted for one big mark, you know, it's like that's grand larceny. Where, right? Well, I guess armed robbery is also <laughs> pretty bad if you get caught doing that. So, I
1: don't know why I just thought it of it, but, uh, but the part where um, he comes up with the idea in the middle of the desert, and Martin Lawrence is like, You hear that, Gila monsters? <laughs> like just the and and again, I'd be curious to know how much of this is ad libbed and how much of this is actual writing, because either way, huge credit is deserved i mean if whatever's ad libbed is hilarious and whatever's actually written is hilarious, so it's like it was kind of a perfect storm of of just like good chemistry, good writing, and just good comedy overall.
0: Well, like why, the reason why I say Martin, this is probably my peak Martin Lawrence is. It's not just verbal comedy, and he's also carrying a wide load because Tim Robbins is pretty stoic. You know, he's not. Tim Robbins is not known for his comedy. Martin Lawrence is delivering his lines like he always does very well, but in the same instance, he's also doing a lot of physical comedy, like the snapping the, his nose back in place, his ass falling asleep, and the way that he's walking at that point when he thinks he's about to die, and he checks his eyeballs like there's so many parts where he's just acting, you know, with his with his facial expressions and with his whole body that just make you laugh. And if you don't laugh at this movie, I don't I don't understand your comedy.
1: Both of them, really, you're mentioning with Martin Lawrence and even the whole scene where like Martin Lawrence is strung up on the balcony with the chair and the bed sheet like that's a pretty like I don't want to say it's like suspenseful like you know, when Joker is on the Murray Franklin show suspenseful, but it's still kind of like, how are they going to figure this out because like that's a pretty precarious situation and again that was a lot of physical like reaching through the glass grabbing the sheet all that kind of stuff so it's it's a really like you know i hate to use the word showcase because i feel like it's just kind of like pretentious and stupid but there's a lot on display here from both of them that just made this movie really awesome
0: would you agree that it's maybe martin lawrence's best
1: i don't know what else to compare it to other than the bad boys movies like i've never seen blue streak or big mama's house or Or what's the one where he goes back in time? Black Knight, I think. I've just never seen any of those. Not for lack of like not wanting to, just kind of never getting around to it. But I know that bad boys is not yes i would agree with you because bad boys to me isn't a martin lawrence movie it's if anything it's a michael bay movie with martin lawrence and will smith and then you know i would argue that it's more it's 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 an action movie so it leans more toward will smith being kind of like the anchor but in terms of comedy yeah i would definitely say this is my favorite martin lawrence movie that i've seen
0: i'll have to get back to i know one of our listeners recommended another martin lawrence movie
1: and i can't i don't remember if it was national security or Blue Streak. I feel like the the formula of teaming Martin Lawrence up with a sort of straight laced white buddy kind of was well on display in this movie. And then I feel like they went to try and cash in on that a couple more times because I know one of those, I forget which one was like him and Steve Zahn. And then one was him and Luke Wilson, I think, or something like that. So it's the same dynamic. But it's like, it's it's definitely not the lightning in a bottle that this movie was.
0: Well, and the weird thing is there, and I don't want to sound like I'm putting anybody down in any of this, but Martin Lawrence is kind of the, I don't want to say sidekick, but he's the one that's playing off somebody else. And I think like with this movie, you caught lighting in a bottle with Tim Robbins because Tim Robbins is a leading man. You know, he proved that in Shawshank, where Steve Zahn is also kind of like a sidekick or somebody that kind of plays off other people. same with Luke Wilson. So I feel like those probably you would have to give Martin Lawrence... A Ryan Reynolds or somebody to play off of to really see it again. Or Will Smith. That's why it worked with the, the bad boys because Will Smith is a leading man.
1: So final thoughts on Nothing to Lose? I
0: would say this is one of my favorite movies that we have revisited. And it's also one of the ones that I think I forgot the most. So I think Nothing to Lose for being five to six episodes into our second season. I think this is a perfect pick for our podcast. And I, I, I want to credit you with being the winner here for this one.
1: <laughs> well, I will say that if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in checking out Nothing to Lose, I would suggest looking for the DVD or possibly VHS first, because this movie costs $18 to buy on Amazon Prime, $4 to rent. But it's definitely worth hanging on to because it's one of those movies that like you can pop in Anytime, whether it's in the background or where you just want to kind of veg out and watch it, it's good on repeat, I feel like. Especially
0: now that we've lost Kelly Preston. Like, go mm-hmm. remember her and her all of her glory. She is
1: such a darling in this movie. Fell in love with her all over again. Well, that's heartwarming. That's a good way to end, I think. We've come full circle. So, this has been uh, Second Chance Cinema. Once again, I'm MC. I'm Spro. And you can listen uh, to The Bump here at the end, find out how to catch us on social media. If you've got a movie you want to recommend or you want to completely disagree with everything we've said, we would love to hear it. But in the meantime, keep listening and keep watching.
0: Nothing to Lose was produced by Touchstone Pictures and O! Entertainment. It was distributed by Buena Vista Pictures. Second Chance Cinema is a fan of the film and urges you to check it out. Closing credits music is If I Had No Loop by Tony Tony Tony. Thank you for listening to this episode of Second Chance Cinema. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or would like to recommend a movie for a future show, you can reach us at secondchancecinema at gmail.com. That's 2 cinema at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at MCNspro, or check us out on Instagram at 2 cinema. To help our little show out, please tell your friends about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and be sure to subscribe and download each episode you listen to as those simple steps makes us much more visible in the universe, which makes these fine secret cinematic masterpieces more visible. And isn't that really the whole point? now go on have a wonderful day you beautiful person you and remember if someone tries to steal your car with you in it drive them a couple states away and become best friends